We put that together and presented it to the school board. This is about treating others with respect. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Education for Sustainable Democracy. I'm your host, Brett Levy. I have an unusual episode for you today because it includes 10 different and very interesting guests. This is the second episode of a two-part series on the Civically Engaged Districts Project, which aims to create nurturing educational spaces for youth voice and civic engagement across entire school districts. In this episode, you'll hear from six students and four teachers who've been involved in this work, aiming to address challenging issues in their districts through research, advocacy, and action. Stay tuned to hear about their work on students' mental health, pandemic pedagogy, and creating safe and inclusive school communities. In the case you missed part one of this series, please check it out. You'll hear from Beth Rubin, professor of education at Rutgers University, and from three district administrators who have been making space for and encouraging students to become involved in improving their school communities. And thank you all so much for listening. If you're new to this podcast, please click that subscribe button so you hear all of our upcoming episodes. And please support the show by giving it five stars in your podcast app and telling a friend about the show. I'd love to hear your comments and suggestions, so please feel free to write to me at esdpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much. This episode has two major segments. The first includes my discussion with students about their civic engagement projects, also known as Youth Participatory Action Research, or YPAR projects. The second segment includes my conversation with teachers about how they guide this work. Here's my conversation with the students. So welcome, everybody. Thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. I really appreciate you being here. I would love to find out about your experiences doing civic engagement projects. We have students who have studied mental health, online learning during COVID, experiences of ELL students in their schools, and perhaps some other issues as well. So why don't we start with the middle school students? Tabitha, could you introduce yourself first? My name is Tabitha, and at the time that I did the YPAR presentation, I was in eighth grade, and our project, we kind of label it the overarching topic of just inclusion, and we had two focuses, which were uh, homophobia and racism. We, we created a Google form, and we sent it out to just gather different information, and basically we kind of took this issue because these issues were pretty prominent in our classes. And we definitely have witnessed a lot of these topics. For example, a lot of microaggressions said to us. And, mm-hmm. and during the whole research process, we kind of found uh, some immature responses um, mm-hmm. within our Google form. And it kind of um, led us to really like that this is actually an issue that's going on. Because I feel like a lot of students in the community tend to just ignore it. And ignorance doesn't really... Um, help anything or they simply just tolerate it and tolerance is one thing but actually like acceptance or like trying to work towards change is a completely other thing overall experience with YPAR I had already done it in seventh grade so it was pretty cool to have an opportunity to kind of lead the project a little bit more and I definitely was more familiar with myself and not only gained research and like study skills but I also like a lot of people skills and this opportunity really helped me I feel like this really just created a really good community for all the students involved. Fantastic. Thank you so much for all of that, Tabitha. Emily, could you tell us about 
your project, where you did it, and some other background information about the project and why you chose that topic? I was in eighth grade at the time. Our project was about gun violence and the causes and effects of it and how we were able to help students who were struggling with mental health issues. And we picked the topic of gun violence because because there were a lot of school shootings and we realized that mental health issues are a cause. So we looked into mental health also. How did you look into mental health issues? What were some of the first things that you did when you explored that issue? To look into the mental health issues, we sent out student surveys to the whole school. And we found out that most of the school had adults who they can trust, but there was still a small percentage who didn't have anyone to talk to and were alone. Wow, not having anyone to talk to. That would definitely be extremely hard for students, especially during the pandemic. So it sounds like you uncovered some really important issues with your research. So thank you so much to you and your classmates for doing this. And we'll circle back to you and Tabitha in a few minutes to hear more about your projects. Now let's go over to the um, high school students. Fifi, could you tell us about your project and why you chose the topic that you did? At the time of the project, I was a junior. I was in 11th grade, and I am currently a senior. Our research project was stress as related to online school and how people were um, adapting to their online classes. Mm-hmm. Um, what we did for ours is, of course, virtually, um, we sent out Google Forms through the main core classes that students had because we, as we wanted to send it out through our history departments as our advisors um, are both history teachers, but not everyone in the school takes history as a senior. So we had to send mm-hmm. it out through the English department because everyone is required to take English. So we sent it out through both the English and history department as a way to just get a feel of how students felt in regards to online learning and how their pacing was because we had a half day schedule instead of our regular full day schedule and my school's half day ends at 11.53. So our classes were only 40 minutes long in comparison to our 60 60 minute classes Mm -hmm. so it was a lot of compression especially for students taking ap classes and then honor courses where a lot of our grades depended on the material we learned within that hour block so Mm -hmm. it was a lot of compression and having to do more work on your own whereas a lot of students had a lot of things to do outside of school so we looked at the stress aspect of being online through um, google forms and We put that together and presented it to the school board. All right, great. Thank you. We'll come back to you to learn more about that project. John, James, and Edelyn, could you tell us about your project and why you chose the topic that you did? Sure. Just to start, my name is Edelyn. When we started the project, I was a junior in high school. Um, We worked through it um, as well in my senior year. I'm now a sophomore in college, so it's been a while. Mm -hmm. Um. When we first started the project, I was a part of kind of like the initial group. Mr. Monahan just kind of fetched this idea of YPAR to us. Um, and we were kind of just thinking of some things to do. And we landed, it's funny now looking back at it, but we kind of landed between two topics. So it was school spirit and experiences that ELL students went through her school. We kind of had a little argument about it, about which one was more important. And I can say that myself, I kind of overlooked just ELL student experiences. Not that it was not important, but I didn't think it was that big of a deal. But with the 
research we conducted, it was kind of like shocking. And John and James kind of took the lead on that. So I guess I'll just let them explain that part of it. Mm -hmm. We found answers through like student surveys, where we got over 200 responses from ELL classes. Hmm. We conducted interviews with students, as well as teachers who taught ELL classes, or who coached different teams in New Brunswick. Um, And we were just able to get general ideas of what the situation was in New Brunswick regarding the ELL population in New Brunswick High School, as well as individual Mm -hmm. accounts and more specific thoughts on what was going on. Like Edelin said, we found there were some surprising results that kind of made us all realize like this was a bigger issue than any of us thought. And there was a lot of underlying discrimination and almost racism within our own school. Hmm. James, do you want to add to that? Yeah. So I'm James, John's brother, and I was a sophomore when I did this in New Brunswick High School. And John and I were part of the data recovery team. And so once we disseminated this, these, this survey and once we conducted these interviews, we were able to get a much better sense of what exactly was the case in our school. Once we synthesized it, every time we spoke, uh, like we spoke to the school board, once we spoke to them and we showed them the stats, you'd see in all their faces, they were incredibly surprised hmm. by what the numbers told. What did the numbers tell you? The numbers told us that ELL students were severely separated from the the majority of the school. Our stats Mm -hmm. told us that only 9.4% of students in ELL played a sport, which is 19 out of 233 students, which was astounding to us at Mm -hmm. the time. Mm -hmm. So you took that information to the school board, you said, and... And they were really surprised by the findings. And then what ended up happening after that? We took a lot of quantitative and qualitative data. Like John and James said, uh, there were a lot of numbers that played into it. And then we also just interviewed students and their experiences. And it was kind of a little gut-wrenching um, just how to see how they felt. Um, so the goal was always to just see who was part of the school and had a sense of belonging. But after you know interviewing students and teachers and coaches, the reality was kind of heartbreaking. So we did present to the board and we decided to uh, start at our middle school. So go on and present to um, parents of ELL students, regular students um, and teachers as well, just so we could start children off young um, and try to build a sense of pride and just belonging before they went off into that high school. Mm -hmm. We were finding that Uh, there's a lower number of uh, ELL students graduating compared to the other students who spoke English regularly. There's a larger number of ELL students who are chronically absent. Uh, Things like this that, as James said, the disconnect between ELL students and other students was having a negative effect on their experience in class and in school, as well as extracurricular activities. And as Edelin said, we wanted to target the middle school as a point in which we should help reinforce positive values and relationships between ELL students and the general student body, because that was where a lot of these social interactions were being developed. There were certain terms that, unbeknownst to us, was very derogatory and kind of demeaning. 
Yeah, those are all really important findings. And I can see why you all wanted to continue to work on this issue after learning all of that. So it sounds like the Youth Participatory Action Research Projects at all four schools uncovered evidence of major challenges. And I'm wondering if you could all talk more about what you did with that information once you had it. Fifi, do you want to start? Yeah, totally. One of the main takeaways that we got from online learning was that teachers were assigning too much and too little time without enough time to give directions on what was going on. I think a great part about the information that we got was that it really helped us open a relationship and a dialogue with not just the students, but with the teachers and administration as well, because it was also coming to a point where it was like, teachers were like, oh, well, you know, administration told us to do this, and we can't do this because we have to get through our lesson plans, and we have to get through our lesson plans and still get through the year. And Mm -hmm. it not only opened this dialogue for students and teachers to be more comfortable with each other while being remote, but opened this dialogue for teachers to look at administration and say, we cannot realistically perform under these standards and meet the state guidelines. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's great that you were able to get that dialogue started. Just getting it going based on uncovering a major evidence-based problem is a big accomplishment. Emily, you mentioned that you gathered data that showed that many students in your school were feeling isolated and lonely. What did you do with those data? As a group, we analyzed all of our information and put them into a pie chart. And from there, we were able to see how many students needed help. And for those students, if we can help others to make the school a more comfortable environment for them. Now, what did you do with that information, Emily, when you created that pie chart? Who did you share it with and what was their response? We were able to share it with with administrations and adults from our school. We suggested ideas on how to make it better. And they were able to take the, those ideas and put them into homeroom lessons. Hmm. such as making recess times, getting stress breaks, getting to know the counselors better, and having a place for students to calm down. Wow, that's a good amount of response. What did you and your peers think of these responses, and how do you think it has worked out? I think right now it's doing really good. There has been changes in student behaviors, although it did take a year for it Mm -hmm. to get to approved, but it's doing really well so far. That's really great, Emily. Tabitha, in the other middle school, what were the results of your research about inclusion and what happened when you shared your findings with the administrators? So basically, we had a pretty positive outcome, which we were a little scared of, um, not going to lie. I mean, like scared of like the reaction. I had the superintendent like come up to us, congratulate us. Uh, they really wanted to move forward with implementing um, certain changes and he really enjoyed the presentation and I feel like that when it comes to when we actually get like noticed this is like more motivation to continue with this topic and continue to spread awareness. Tabitha was your research done in the context of a like a class or an after-school program? So why part like we were like an after-school club. Emily was it also an after-school club for you? Yeah it was. It would be once a week after school for an hour. And from there, we would do warm-ups, getting to get comfortable with each other. 
and then starting to brainstorm ideas for our project and how to collect data. Mm-hmm. Great. Fifi, was yours also an after-school program? Yeah, ours was also an after-school program. We met once mm-hmm. a week for an hour, um, and then mm-hmm. we met once a week for an hour as well on Zoom during the online year last year. Mm-hmm. So what was the response of the adults when you shared your research with them? At first, they were kind of hesitant with our responses because they were like, oh, well, you know, the work still has to be done. You know, like this being online doesn't really change anything. But, you know, when they started to see the stress factor of the students as well as the teachers, they did kind of see our point as to why it was kind of unrealistic to impose the standards they were posing on both the students and the teachers. So they came around to seeing our point after our first um, presentation with the administration. And I think it really was beneficial because, you know, even though that was last school year, I'm still getting compliments in person now from teachers that are like, oh, you did the presentation. Like, thank you so much. Like, and I'm just like, oh, you remember that. So you know, I think it really was beneficial for not just the students, but the educators as well. So they took your ideas seriously, and then did changes follow shortly thereafter, or did it take a while? What were the results? It was a steady pickup. Like at first, it it started off with just emails, like, you know, please allow students time to complete any missing work. And then it began to pick up where they were like, okay, you know, um, students really cannot handle that much work. Do not assign more than three assignments a week. And only two of them should really be graded assignments. It did start to get to a point where teachers were listening um, because it was easier on them to grade. Administration did start to take our points a lot more seriously. That was something we were really happy about. So it sounds like it really had a big impact. How do you feel having accomplished what you accomplished? It was a very proud feeling because administration doesn't always listen to us and to get them to not just listen, but to really take our advice that the students could not mentally handle it as well as the educators. I think it really meant a lot because, you know, mental health is often so overlooked when it comes to teenagers and even with adults because it's like, oh, well, you know, how will you ever get prepared for the real world if you can't handle this now? So I think it was really nice to see students finally like actually be heard by adults. Mm -hmm. Tabitha, what about you? Did you feel good about what you accomplished? Uh, I feel like that after this project, I felt really confident in myself and how just a normal student like me can actually uh, create something much bigger, like a bigger difference in the world. Because I feel like that in like a big public school, it may seem kind of hard to like stand out or actually make a difference. But with this club, it kind of proved to me that I actually can. And I and I did feel satisfied with all the results. Um, I really wanted to choose topics that were personal to me and I had a personal connection with. So that really helped me uh, become immersed in the topic and really put forth a lot of effort. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So choosing what mattered to you was helpful for generating your motivation. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. What about you, Emily? How do you feel about how the project went? Were you satisfied with how things turned out? And do you think you might become involved in the future? I'm very satisfied with the results that we were able to give. We were also able to send the senators postcards and we're able to get students to send some as well. And I would like to keep on extending 
onto this project because I think it's something that we can work on more um, to make the school a lot better than what it is right now, to make it a better a better place to, to learn at. Great. Thank you. John, James, and Edelyn, I haven't forgotten about you. Could you tell us about the impact of your research on ELL students in your district? It sounds like you found a lot of problems and you highlighted them for administrators in your district. Could you talk about their response to what you presented to them? When we finally just got to present this to the board and then to parents, I think it was sort of shocking to them. I think everyone was kind of in shock. You could hear like the oohs and ahs, I guess, um, in the audience. We, we had a goal to just like, again, start off in the middle school, something that was kind of shocking to them and shocking to me as well is that during research, we found out that out of the obviously 100% of yellow language learners, only about 65 of them, 64 graduated high school. And out of those 64%, only 22 even pursued like a post-secondary education. So it was shocking to say the least. I'm especially interested in in what happened. You know, you you highlighted so many different challenges, and I'm wondering how the administrators or the teachers, the adults in the school and the district, took all the information that you were giving them, and what was the response? We started a language breaking club in the middle school, like I said earlier, to just kind of introduce ELL students into the school body, just to have them feel equal. We started introducing the idea of Spanish speaking co-leaders, captains to just sports, uh, different clubs. The high school also started kind of just like ELL honors classes. Great. That's great. So John, James, and Edelyn, what did, what effect did this experience, do you think, have on you as individuals? I felt very encouraged by the entire experience. I felt very encouraged, especially after meeting with the administrators of the New Brunswick public school system. It felt empowering as a student to know that we could bring change, that not only were we capable of getting the attention of the administrators, but also we had teachers and other faculty having our backs and helping us out along the process. And it's helped personally me whenever I see something as I move to a new school and now I'm starting college. Anytime I see something that that I think I kind of want to change that, I'm more oriented towards working towards that change. It's fantastic that this project had such a deep effect on you. Edelyn, what about you? Personally, it kind of changed even my career goals. Before I kind of went into this group, I was set on being kind of like a doctor. And even when I went to school, I started as a bio major, but it just wasn't right for me. And I changed into political science. It kind of resonates more with the White Park group because I feel like it helped me understand that I wanted to make a change and a difference. That's great, Edelyn. James, did you want to add something? This was the first civic engagement thing I ever had to do. This was my first dive into real life things that would affect real life people. This reinforced my desire to become a journalist. So I'm majoring in journalism right now at Essex County College. And since Mm -hmm. then, I've been looking into ways that I can interact with my community. I've been an avid voter. I am now an election official. So I work the elections. I've tried my best to create Mm -hmm. a uh, multimedia platform at Essex County College where I'm attending school. And it's all because of what, you know, Mr. Monaghan really started 
by getting us together and trying to change how the school looks at ELL students and the student body in general. This is more than just the ELL students. This is about treating others with respect. I thought that was amazing. I love this, this whole club. Thank you so much, James. That was Tabitha Alegria, Emily Garcia, Fifi Cotun, Edelin Hidalgo, and brothers James and John Nikolai. They've all been working on youth participatory action research projects in central New Jersey as part of the Civically Engaged Districts Project, run by Beth Rubin of Rutgers University. You can hear Professor Rubin discuss the project's goals and history in episode one of this series. In the second segment of this episode, I talked to teachers who were involved in the project. And if you're enjoying this show, please remember to subscribe and share it with a friend. You can check out all of the episodes of Education for Sustainable Democracy at esdpodcast.org. Now, here's my conversation with four teachers from the Civically Engaged Districts Project. Chris Monahan, Sean Viegas, Brandy Gustafson, and Luma Hassan. Thank you all so much for joining me today. Chris, I'd like to start by hearing about your work at the high school. Could you tell us about how you started to use youth participatory action research or YPAR with your students and what your role was in the process? Sure. I got an email, anybody that was interested in civic engagement to apply for um, what I thought was going to be something that was in, in addition to the curriculum. So during my school hours. I had just, <laughs> my wife and I just had our, our daughter and um, I kind of took a step back from clubs and coaching and I wanted to do something that I was interested in and I, I cared deeply about, but I didn't know how to do that. And so when I got the opportunity that I thought was going to be within class time, I said, oh, absolutely. And I, I jumped on the email. I think it was like three seconds after I got the email or read it, I e- emailed back, I am interested. And that's how that started it. And in terms of being able to, what I thought was going to be a curriculum within uh, the, the, what I thought could be applied to the US2 course. Um, it was an honors US2 class and the students in that class, most of them I taught the previous year in honors US1. They were kind of ready for AP history. They just, it just didn't work out because of all the other courses that they were taking. And so I was really excited to be able to present the idea to um, the, the class and say, hey, this is something that you might be interested in. And I had two students who said they were interested. And we had a meeting with Dr. Rubin at uh, Rutgers University. And they had received some information. And I said to the students, we're going to do this during class. I know they said that it was after school. We don't have after school right now. And I thought it was something that we could definitely like squeeze into our class because there was only a class of 12. And so, you know, you can kind of move through curriculum quickly if, if needed. And so mm-hmm. it quickly became this cornerstone of the class and how we started class and how we ended class revolved around that in the beginning. And then eventually it grew. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it. You know, I saw the talents in those, in those students. And, you know, I think one of the other questions you asked me was something about what was my, my role in the process and really... Mm-hmm. Part of it was just getting administrative approval. You know, at first I just, I would run questions past the uh, principal, like, hey, is, do you think this is a good topic? Would you let us do this? And then the students don't know this, but they're, I guess they're going to find out now. I would have talks with the principal about like what they were doing and what they, where they were going with it mm-hmm. and let him know like a heads up, you're going to get an email from a student. They're going to ask you X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I want them to take the ownership of this and make sure that they have the entire class kind of be the owners of their own learning. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. I, I guess I should mm-hmm. preface like that honors us two class started in like a shared space. It, it started in a shared space where we um, ex- were exposed to the ELL population or the multi emerging uh, bilingual students within the building. And I kind of hinted at one or two of the students. I think it was Edelin and, and her close friend, I said, what do you think about the ELL students? Do you think they feel like they belong here? And that kind of became their focal point afterwards. And, you know, I said, well, how do you, you know, how do you find out about this? Asking those questions to kind of prompt them of like, well, how do you, how do you make data, right? Like, mm-hmm. how do you do it? Because they, they would ask like, well, where do we get the information from? Like, well, that's just it. You have to make it. And I remember Dr. Rubin coming mm-hmm, to visit mm-hmm. and like give some insight because I think I surprised her when I told her, no, we're, we're doing this during class. Um, <laughs> and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. she helped she helped that with the guidance of like letting them know, like you can create your own data set. Or, and, and so the students really did. I, I, I think Edelin mentioned it was both quantitative and qualitative. And the first thing they did was they created questions to survey just about every single ELL student in our building took that survey. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they mm-hmm. were short like 15. Hmm. Wow. Um, when they got the information back, I, I just remember them being like, well, we have all this data. And I was like, well, yeah, you have all the, these numbers and you're able to look at it. And we didn't have, I don't think James and John were part of the team yet. And I said, well, you know, one of the other things that you might want to do is is talk to people about it. What do they think? What do you, why do they think these problems exist? based off the data set that you now have. So they created some questions to ask coaches and teachers and students, both ELL and non-ELL students, to see where they were in terms of being a part of the school. Mm -hmm. Personally, I think it's really important to have students belong to a school. I'm always encouraging students to join clubs, join a sports team, even if you're not athletic or you don't think you're athletic or maybe you just like a sport, just go out and try it out. Because I think being part of a team gives you a space in school. It makes you feel like you belong there and more likely to graduate um, statistically and just overall enjoy your high school career. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Finding out that the ELL population within our, our school or my, was really, to me, it was a, it was a blow. I mean, I, I, mm-hmm. I've been working in the district for 15 years now. And at the time, I just remember being like, it's exactly what I expected. Simultaneously, mm-hmm. it was like way worse than I anticipated. I mean, I think it was like 3% of the students were involved in a, mm-hmm. in a club. Chris, when Beth came to you, when Dr. Rubin came to you and said, would you like to do this? Did you know that your administration would be receptive to students advocating for particular issues within your building? Or were you perhaps uncertain of how they might respond to students doing that type of thing? Well, at the time, I I had a pretty good relationship with the principal of the building, and I had a pretty good idea that he was going to let me do whatever um, I wanted so long as it was, um, you know, it fit within legality issues and confidentiality issues that that he may have seen by talking with him and working with him to make sure that that we stayed within the confines of, I guess, the the legality um, of privacy. I think Mm we Mm -hmm. ensured that. Great. So, Sean, could you tell us a bit about your story and how you guided students through the YPAR project? Yeah, absolutely. So, 
I mean, I, I started with YPAR when I was a student teacher in New Brunswick, actually. I was at Rutgers um, and I was doing my student teaching. I was doing uh, our urban ed program and I got started there. And when I got over to Franklin, you know, we kind of got an all staff email and was like, hey, there's this thing coming here called YPAR. It has to do with Rutgers University. Does anybody want to facilitate this? Is there a staff member that wants to do it? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. Because I've, I've done that before. And it seemed like at that time, at least Franklin Middle School uh, was not familiar with it. So I was like, yeah, sure, you know, I'll do that. And it, the club kind of got started from there. At that point in time, um, it was just, you know, a volunteer club. I was just kind of helping out a little bit um, as our, our Rutgers student teachers were facilitating for the most part. And they were kind of asking me for advice. And going forward, I I had let our administration know that, you know, this is a club that, you know, needs more than a half year. At that time, it was really a half year project because it was based on semesters with the student teachers. So we had mm-hmm. talked with the admin and, and, you know, we had proposed, Dr. Rubin and I had proposed a whole, in a sense, a curriculum that, hey, we could follow this, we can do this. If we have a full year, I think it could be a lot more effective. And that's kind of how it got started there. And I, I kind of took that as a, as a project that I, I really just fell in love with when I was a student teacher and brought it over to, I'd say, a similar community in Franklin. And the kids kind of took it and ran with it. So what we had done last year, you know, that is really when COVID hit and, and remote learning really took charge. Everything was virtual. And, and, you know, how can we do this? What can we do? And our students really wanted to figure out and let our teachers know, actually, that you know, what is working for us, what is what is not working for us um, in terms of virtual resources, virtual platforms that we're using in class, out of class. Um, we had this, you know, kind of hybrid model um, where we were doing some kids were in school, some kids were out of school. And how is that all working for, you know, every student? So, you know, we conducted surveys um, where we had got at least 100 from both from all sixth, seventh and eighth grade classes. I think we had about 350 responses total. And our, our students, our group really wanted to know how many of you guys are actually fully remote, which I believe was about 80% of our students at the time were uh, fully remote at home. And from there, kind of got into Zoom. And our, our big thing at our, our building was students not turning their camera on. And mm-hmm. obviously, mm-hmm. there's a lot that goes with that and a lot that we as as teachers kind of understand. Um, I think we understand how, you know, we have to be a little sensitive in terms of what students choose to and, and choose not to show us. And that's 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 absolutely fine because all students do come with, you know, certain baggage. So um, I know that was a really big issue that we focused on is, you know, do you feel comfortable having your camera on? There were teachers that are a little upset about not being able to see their students and understandably so, but, you know, we wanted to understand the reasons behind that. And from there, we, we kind of got into, you know, how do they how do they like to participate in Zoom? Um, what are the ways they actually like to learn and, and consume and work with content that they're getting? Different platforms such as Pear Deck, Jamboard, Nearpod, Edpuzzle. Uh, do they like to communicate via via chat, via Zoom poll, via the, our GoGuardian, which is this uh, server we have to kind of monitor students' screens and, and things like that? Do they like working in breakout rooms? Do they actually think they're effective? Um, and these are all things that we actually presented at the end of the year to our admin and, and to our faculty so they know, hey, if we keep doing this and this is something that, that could be long-term, 
these are the things that our students are actually telling us that work and, and don't work and that they really enjoy and make their learning experience ultimately the best uh, that it could be. That's great, Sean. Yeah, I'll bet the administrators really appreciated getting that concrete evidence-based feedback. Brandy, could you tell us a bit about your experience? How did you choose your issue and what was the experience like in your school? Depending on the year, it depends kind of on the issue. A lot of times uh, my students are influenced by what's going on in the news or what's going on around them at school. So we wound up having almost like a two-year project that started with gun violence in school as Mm -hmm. there were a lot of school shootings occurring at the time and students were concerned. But as we started to break down the main topics, students started to realize that a lot of it really connects to mental health issues. So we spent the first year focusing more so on gun violence, but we came up with some ideas for mental health issues. And then we started working on the mental health issues and student depression the following year. And then our schools closed down for the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Basically, we just kind of, we really started a discussion. My students are very young. They're typically in sixth grade. Mm. So they're unfamiliar with the youth participatory action research, um, autonomy and projects, and even like kind of questioning the establishment within the school. Mm-hmm. So sometimes they kind of need assistance. So in the beginning, we do a lot of different activities to really get them thinking critically about the school, the school environment, and to kind of get them out of that thinking that that topics are just, there's things that can't be changed. Um, sometimes they don't realize that they can actually change a lot more of what's going on in the school. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did you have a sense that your administration would be receptive to student voices? So I've been doing this for six years. I would say in two of the six years, I have had some pushback. I found that like not all those stakeholders appreciate the feedback or are even open to the process. So we've received pushback before on like topics we've chosen, as well as questions that are in the survey. Mm-hmm. And this really connects to when like there's resistance from either other teachers who feel that maybe they're under the radar or other staff or administration. And some of the stakeholders can be kind of uncomfortable with the process or like unfamiliar with students looking behind the curtain. So Mm -hmm. sometimes we do get a little pushback. When we deal with bigger topics, though, like gun violence in schools or things like that, where there isn't a specific group of stakeholders within the school, then we have no problems in the program. Like nobody pushes back. But otherwise, we've learned how to, to deal with the pushback. And a lot of it is really just people's discomfort. Mm-hmm. What about you, Sean? You didn't talk too much about that. Did you always think that your administration would be receptive to the ideas your students might raise? This past year where we did the um, remote learning, you know, our admin was all for it. In the past years, I know originally, I believe it was two years ago, our group wanted to or think about reforming um, our, our disciplinary system. Um, they didn't believe that in-school suspension was was effective. Um, it really wasn't a good way of, of disciplining students. There should be other ways in terms of um, restorative justice practices. And when we had originally kind of pitched it to our admin, they really were not a big fan of it. You know, I think they were a little nervous that they might have been in the wrong. And, you know, maybe they wanted to keep on doing the way they were doing. Um, and our students, you know, and, and, teachers as well, like we kind of recognize that there are better ways. Um, and, and I think that's really the only time that um, we really had pushback 
um, and we had to kind of shift our topic and we had a lot of discussions about it, but um, we ultimately shifted our topic to, I believe, inclusivity with LGBTQ plus uh, individuals in our school. Other than that one instance, admin has been has been very supportive. That's great. Luma, I'd love to hear from you. Could you tell us about your experiences guiding YPAR? Yeah, absolutely. A lot of my experience is very similar to Sean's in terms of where I started and where I ended up. I, you know, I had done YPAR as a student teacher, and then I ended up having the opportunity to do it at the Franklin High School when I got that position. It started out more so as continuing doing this work that I really enjoyed in college, but really throughout my teaching, it really became kind of a window where I could take the experiences that I knew students were having in my classroom or in the school in general and kind of utilize YPAR and the Youth in Action Club as a way to give them a platform that unfortunately they weren't going to get just by being students in the school. Mm -hmm. So obviously with this big data-driven push in administrations and in school communities in general and with this emphasis on research and Unfortunately, as much as we would like for student voices to count on their own and as much as they might count to us on their own, they don't always in the grand scheme of things when it comes to schools as institutions. So YPAR was a way for me as a teacher to make sure that I was putting students into that space, um, not speaking for them, but also putting them in a position where they were going to be taken seriously and where they were going to have a louder microphone to get with the changes that they wanted in the school that should be happening anyway. So that was my experience with it, moving outside of my classroom into the school as a whole. What would you say to members of the audience, especially educators who might be hesitant about starting to guide YPAR in their schools or encouraging YPAR to develop in their schools? The biggest thing for me, I would say, is that Unfortunately, when we get into schools, we're often pinned against students, even though that's not what we typically learn, obviously, in our programs and not what our philosophies are going in. But that's ultimately what happens because of the nature of the hierarchies in schools. So I would say if it's something that teachers are nervous about or if it's something that, you know, you're afraid you're going to get pushed back on, um, you know, organizing with large groups of people and organizing in solidarity with students does put you in a very powerful position. And I I think Sean had spoken to this earlier about this kind of fear a little bit almost that YPAR programs create. It is a healthy fear. At least for me, it was something that did protect me in the sense because there was clear value in what the students were doing, but they were also almost in a position of power because of the way they were exposing the issues in the school. So there became this need to act based on what the students were proposing because then otherwise the school was afraid for its own reputation. Hmm. So it's a really exciting way to kind of reconnect with what I assume are most people's teaching philosophies, which is really obviously to support students and be there for students and better the school community. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I would say like it's a way to reconnect with that. And it's also a way to push back against this hierarchical notion of schools. You're not an advisor over students. You are working in solidarity with students. And those are two very different mindsets that ultimately can seep into everything you do as a teacher. Mm -hmm. 
And what advice would any of you give to educators who are interested in doing this work? Chris, Sean, Brandy? Um, yeah. Okay, go ahead, Brandy. I see Brandy's hand up. She's following the rules here, which I didn't <laughs> say, but... <laughs> Um, in terms of advice for teachers, I would say try to give the students as much autonomy as possible, but also make sure that you step in and assist whenever it's necessary. A lot of people don't realize, but independent and student-led research doesn't come naturally to students. They mm -hmm. need to be taught or guided, especially if this is their first time. But I do think it's a very rewarding experience. So I highly recommend it. And I think it just just be mindful of where you can support the kids and what are the best ways to support them without stepping into their project. Great. Thank you. Sean, Chris, what would you say? What would your advice be? You want to give your students a voice. I think as, as we move into this civic engagement needs to be authentic. And if we're going to create civically engaged curriculums throughout the state or the country, we need to give students a voice at the table and ensure it's tailored to their interests and passions. I noticed that my students were not passionate about this topic when we started it. They were curious mm -hmm. and that curiosity blossomed into passion. Um, as I think um, you heard them uh, discuss that through the earlier recording. So by including those students in decision-making, I think it really allows them to feel like this is their safe space, that they belong to something, something that they care about, something that they get something out of. And so listen to what they are curious about and, and help them discover and develop their passions through their curiosities. Thank you. Sean, what advice would you give to teachers who are considering doing this? I think if teachers are interested in doing this kind of work, they have to be passionate about building relationships with students and be committed to creating, like Chris said, a, a safe space for thought and discussion. This program and organization really can't be effective if students don't have that safe space to speak their mind and to talk about what they really care about, what's really affecting them in their school and their community and what they're really experiencing. So, you know, not only is it for them to be comfortable student to student and for all of us, you, know, you have a very wide variety of, of students um, in terms of grade level experiences. Uh, I know for me, there's a really big difference between, you know, sixth graders and eighth graders. And when they're together, especially they don't really know each other. That takes a lot of time in the beginning mm -hmm. for them to really understand, hey, we're working on something together. You're two years younger than me. You're mm -hmm. two years uh, younger in terms of maturity level as well. How can we actually do this? How can we learn from one, one another? And for teachers, really just to build those positive relationships with your students, let them know that you do care about what they care about and you mm -hmm. care about them wanting to really better themselves and better the community and their school building. I think they need to see that from you for them to even open up about anything, you know, initially. I think that that kind of takes precedent for this program to really work. Fantastic. Well, thank you all so much for your time and for your work. Thank you. That was Chris Monahan, Sean Viegas, Brandy Gustafson, and Luma Hassan, all teachers in central New Jersey who have been part of the Civically Engaged Districts Project. To learn more about the project and youth civic inquiry, please check out the great links in the show notes. Many of them were chosen by Beth Rubin, who runs the project. 
The show notes also include links to related episodes, including my discussions with Beth Rubin and district administrators involved in the Civically Engaged District Project. And this is Education for Sustainable Democracy. I'm Brett Levy. To learn more about the show and to check out other episodes, please visit esdpodcast.org. That's esdpodcast.org. If you like this show, please subscribe, give it five stars in your podcast app, and share this episode with a friend. Thank you so much for your support and have a great day.